Thank you so much for sharing with us so far uh, your history up until writing the book and your, your motives and thoughts for publishing the book. Now what I'd like to do is kind of do a dive into your first book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. And I think the way I'd like to try and set it up, and this is a bit experimental because it's not necessarily in the exact order you wrote the book, but I want to contrast a bit for our listeners what the traditional correlated view is of Mormon history so that then we can um, so we can then compare what you learned as you actually studied Mormon history as it contrasts with what the correlated view is. So for our listeners, I'll just take you all through it. Uh, Joseph Smith, you know, born in 1805 in, in Vermont, eventually moved to Palmyra, New York. Um, when he was a boy, uh, he was curious about which church he should join. And so he read in the book of James and decided to pray, went out to a, um, a grove of trees, let's say in, um, in his 14th year, when he was 14 years old, prayed to know which church was true. Uh, during that prayer, God the Father and Jesus Christ came down and uh, told him that he should join none of the churches because they were an abomination, but instead that, that God and Jesus would be establishing their one true church um, with Joseph Smith. Uh, so Joseph Smith then continued as a boy um, and uh, grew in light knowledge, had visits from Angel Moroni, knew at a young, at a young age that he was going to be publishing the Book of Mormon. There were several years where he wasn't able to actually see the plates, but eventually he was able to actually get the plates. Um, while he had those plates, he, uh, um, he started translating them. We know that Martin Harris and Emma helped him at the beginning. But eventually the manuscript got lost, and so then Oliver Cowdery took over, um, and, and eventually the Book of Mormon was published. As we're taught about how the Book of Mormon, the mechanics of how the translation happened, we're taught about some type of breastplate with, with uh, a Urim and Thummim, where it was a literal translation where he'd look at the characters in the gold plates, and then he would translate them uh, into English. There are often recordings of how he would literally... Um, you know, it was a literal translation, uh, and then it goes on. He goes on to f to to start the church. Uh, the priesthood is given. Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood is granted um, by the hand of angels, and um, you know, and the church continues in strength and light and knowledge uh, to to where we have it today. And then, as a side note, uh, you know, the 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 witnesses got to feel the plates with their own hands. Um, some of them got to actually see the plates with their own eyes. Um, Joseph Smith was a, a super righteous person next to Jesus in righteousness uh, and no other man has done more for the it's for the salvation of mankind uh, other than Jesus than has Joseph Smith. So let's just say that's the correlated um, view of our church history. Um, why don't we we tell us what you discovered that's a little that's a little different. And if you don't mind, instead of starting with the first vision, since the first vision isn't actually written down until uh, 1832, I think, for the first time, let's start with what Joseph uh, was like as a teen and, and what types of activities and businesses he got into when he was growing up with him and his father and, and, and stuff like that. All right. Um, well, Joseph was a very curious person. 
um, he had a very good mind and a pretty good memory. And by the way, that memory we're now finding goes back in his line. Silas Smith, his uncle, had a very good memory. Richard Van Wagner will be writing about this in the trilogy that will appear at Signature Books in a year or two. Joseph had a very good mind. He uh, he seemed to be able to remember things that he read. He, uh, he had a pretty good grasp of the King James Bible. We know that from section 4 in the Doctrine and Covenants, if you look at that short revelation that all missionaries quote about white is the field and it's white to be reaped and uh, you know and these are the qualities you need to do for missionary work it is utterly amazing to me how many three four five word biblical phrases that he just pulling out of his that are they're definitely king james bible phrases that are integrated in an ongoing revelation there there's hardly anybody in the church that could could do that today Maybe Neil Maxwell when he was alive. Maybe there's others, but that, this is this is pretty impressive. He seems to, he he grasps things. He's curious. He's not the quite the ignorant farm boy that we've portrayed him to be. And in the areas where he was most interested, that's where we see flect, reflected that material in the Book of Mormon. He was into revivals. He attended as often as he could. He was into the King James Bible. Those are things we see in the Book of Mormon. Uh, some of his neighbors were 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 not very or were disingenuous towards him. I mean, they'd say he was lazy, or the Smith family was lazy. Well, you know, they lost their house, and when you're a renter, you don't exactly keep your yard up quite the same as if you own the place. Um, it said that they drank. I think everybody drank back then, and so. You know, I when I use E.D. Howe's affidavits of his neighbors, I tried to be selective. Uh, Joseph was uh, raised to be a, a, a visionary, really. His mother and his father uh, were very much, his mother was quite pious. His father uh, less so, but he was into more of the magical thinking. Joseph inherited this kind of visionary outlook and was very much part of that, uh, and so they'd go treasure hunting and what have you. Um, he also he, he'd also come from a. Uh, I I think today we call it a dysfunctional family. He's he's got a family that is uh, his father is uh, did a fair amount of drinking. Alvin actually had to build the house. Uh, we, he talks about uh, his drunk drunken condition at times in patriarchal blessings to Hiram and others. His family is split religiously. His father is a uh, a universalist. His mother is leans more towards Presbyterianism. Eventually, her and three or four of the kids join. So it's divided religiously. They don't have any money. They don't have any influence socially, economic, politically, and they don't even have a very high standing in the community in, in regards to their neighbors. Uh, Partly because they're having visionary projects. They're saying, well, you ought to see what I've seen. Let's go down and find a silver mine. Let's go over here and do this visionary project. So the neighbors signed affidavits saying, 
when the gold plate story came out, it, they'd cried wolf one too many times, and nobody paid much attention to it. So tell tell us a little bit about these uh, gold digging or treasure seeking expeditions. You know what can you know paint a picture of who's going, what they're doing, who's involved, what's Joseph's role, etc. Well, from a, we we have evidence from a variety of sources from old timers who lived there. The Smiths were involved in the treasure hunting almost from the time they moved there. We know from 1820, 1819, 20 to 27, they were were doing treasure hunting at the Hill Camorra, what today is called Camorra. They they did it before the Golden Plate story, during the Angel Gold Plate story, and after the plates were retrieved. So... There's legends or traditions that there's hidden material there, and they would go out at night. Uh, usually Joseph, his father, Alvin, Hiram, sometimes Samuel, and they would they would look for, for treasure. Sometimes it would be salt. Sometimes it would be um, mines, hidden lost treasure. And they would go through certain ritual procedures, and there were there were a number of people doing it in that era. It wasn't unique to no, but it was kind of dying out about eighteen twenty five, six, and seven. Was it socially? How was it viewed socially? Well, the practice? The, uh, there there's just like today. There are some people that are more inclined to superstition, and some less so. Some people always probably thought it was strange, and others less so. Was the goal to actually find money and to get rich? To find treasure, was that the goal of these outings? Well, I think so. I mean, they they claimed a kind of a second sight, or or the scriptural phrase for that is the we saw this by the eyes of our understanding. That's an important phrase. The LDS people today, if they read section one ten, where he and Oliver Cowdery are seeing Jesus and Elijah and Moses and what have you, the very first verse is and and the eyes of our understanding were open. When they're seeing all of these beings in uh, the Kirtland Temple, it was all by the eyes of our understanding. Convoy after convoy of angels, one person said they saw. They're really not seeing anything, as you and I would use the term. They're perceiving. They're seeing it in their mind, so to speak. And so why would they go treasure-seeking to just see treasures in their mind? Because they, they would see them in their mind, and then the fact they believed they existed is when they went to dig for them. Okay, and, and did they ever find treasure? They never did. Huh. So, But why would they keep doing it? Were they trying to fool other people? I mean, why would... They, well, they, you, they would always have excuses. They would say, well, someone spoke out of turn, or we didn't draw the circle properly, or we didn't make the the little uh, sacrifice of the, the dog or the chicken, or we didn't use the the right... F- phraseology to they did sacrifice dogs and chickens or or i i think there's an example or two but i don't uh, you know that some people claim that that was going on with the smiths but they they were into the different but they always had an excuse why they failed well were they doing the just with themselves or were they bringing other people along oh they would have sometimes they would have uh, willard chase with them Uh, they would have uh uh, Beeman, I think was his name. Sometimes they would have, uh, oh, Joseph Knight Sr. when they would dig on his property over in the, over in the, where is it? Uh, forget Bainbridge, New York. That's not the place. 
It just it just doesn't sound very fun. Let's all go out and go search for this treasure, and we'll go and we'll see a vision in our minds of what the treasure is, and then we'll dig for it, but we'll never find it. But we'll keep doing it for 10 years. Well, I think they thought they would find it. So they really thought they were... Do you think they... So it wasn't like they were trying to fool or fraud, defraud anybody. I don't think so. They really believed that they were seeing treasures in the mountains yes. and that they were going to find them if they did the right ritual and the right steps yes. to actually find them. And Joseph had the seeing gift better than the others, and so he was often the person who would point out where stuff was. Now, his father had that ability, and and Alvin, I think, may have had that ability, and others... Samuel Lawrence had that ability, but Joseph seemed, Sally Chase had that ability. She was, these are neighbors. Uh, but Joseph uh, seemed to be at least convincing that he was able to see these, and so they go out and dig accordingly. Now, we have statements um, under two under court oath and two affidavits that Joseph privately told people that uh, he really couldn't see anything in that stone, but he would he'd make a little money. And huh. he told that to Addison Austin under oath at two different court trials in July of 1830. And then he also told his father-in-law uh, and brother-in-law, Alva Hale, and uh, Mr. Hale, Isaac Hale, the same thing, and they all independently wrote this so they were making they were making some money off of this deal well i think so uh i think we've played that down and uh joseph in his official history said that uh he was accused of money digging once and uh and he never made any money he tried to talk the old man stole out of it but uh Joseph was not only paid a little money to help find but he was they had shares of when they found the silver mine i know right and uh, so, I mean, there was, a, there was a temptation there. He said he was tempted and did some things in his youth that he wasn't uh, particularly proud of. Maybe this was one of them where he was telling people he could find treasure and see treasure, and, and he really, really couldn't. But he seemed to carry that over. They're not only seeing uh, guardian spirits of secular treasure in the hills and elsewhere, but they're also seeing religious personages and uh, through the same stone, right? And translating the Book of Mormon with, with, with that stone and others. So you mentioned a stone. Well, what did a stone have to do with this treasure seeking? Well, Joseph said that he could look into the stone and see images. He could see where treasure was deposited. He could see. Uh, and would then accordingly guide them to the spot. So was he the only one with a stone, or did other people have a stone? No, no. Samuel Lawrence had one. Sally Chase had one. Uh, the Whitmers had several. John and Jacob and David Whitmer had a stone. Uh, and uh, Joseph Sr. had stones. And uh, Willard Chase had a stone. What did what did the stone look like, and what did they call Well, they had a variety of them. The, the most important stone, of course, the... the uh, uh, the one that he translated the Book of Mormon through, but he also used that same stone to see guardian treasures in the hills. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, 
How do they refer to these stones? Do they have a name? Oh, they'd call them a peep stone or a uh, a scene stone or a seer stone. Um, a stone of peculiar quality, that kind of thing. I'm trying to get a sense for, did they really believe that they were seeing things through these stones? Or was it just fraud, you know, just charlatan sort of works? Or do we know? I think they uh, believe that Joseph Smith and Sally Chase and Sam Lawrence and some of them could actually see in the stone. I think every LDS person has to ask themselves that question. And I, I personally don't think they could see anything in those stones. But uh, I know LDS people who do. Who believe that they were really having sincere, yes. true visions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do we go from treasure digging and, and seer stones, etc.? Well, real quick, did did Joseph ever get in trouble for doing this? Oh, yes. He had an 1826 examination. It was kind of like what we'd call a pretrial examination. It wasn't, a, you know, a full court. I mean, it was a court proceeding, but it was it, it, it was really dismissed at that point on the pretrial examination. Then he had two more in July of 1830, which stemmed from charges earlier in 26, 27. And so every once in a while he'd kind of get in a little bit of trouble for this. Was it against the law what he was doing or or was it questionable or, you know, why was the law even involved? Yeah, I think it was a misdemeanor. Uh, they called it juggling, which is, you know, claiming to see things underground and when you really couldn't see anything. Or glass looking? Did glass looking was, yeah, that's scrying, all of those kind of things. I, I'm not is formed on the legal part of that, but uh, there was some legal. There's some kind of a legal ramification there. And and during all this time, did everyone know that Joseph had seen a vision of God and Jesus, uh, as the traditional story goes, no, that he had a, been told to start the One True Church? That no. this was just Joseph in his formative years getting ready to start the One True Church. I mean, how did? Did, did he even did even his family know about the first vision at the time? No, not at all. There's no nobody knew about it. Not at those critics and the who had negative affidavits about him. They didn't know. His family didn't know. So he didn't come back and tell everyone at any point during these twenties that he had. Not that we know. So there's no evidence of Joseph telling people that he had the first vision, or was told to start God's one true church, or was called to start the Book of Mormon. In the early to mid-20s. You no, know, in fact, the family's uh, perception of the whole thing is that it was all, it's all about uh, an angel, later named Moroni. Uh, when when uh, Lucy Smith, his mother, writes her brother about uh, the beginnings of the church, it's it's all about an angel. An angel. It, it's He's called to the work by an angel. Section 20 in the Doctrine and Covenants, he's called to the work by an angel. There's not called by God and Jesus. There's, okay. It, it, Lucy, in her... Her uh, interviews that she recorded with uh, Howard and uh, uh, June Corey, Jane Corey, she says that they were sitting around discussing religion one night, and Joseph went up to bed, and then uh, almost sounded like a dream. An angel came to him and said, uh, uh, I understand you've been inquiring after true religion. Uh, there are no t- true churches on the earth, and but if you're good and there's a record for you and you can go dig it up 
And that, this is that's around, her story. This is around when? Well, she that's the story she heard early on about how Joseph was called to the work. Okay. And then William Smith, he says the same thing. It's it's a combination of uh, first vision motifs along with angel or uh, uh, yeah, an angel motifs and uh, and that's quite different, of course, from what you hear in the, uh, the later versions of the first vision. So at least the people around Joseph are not engaging with him with any understanding of him having talked to God and Jesus, with him having no. the intent to start the one true church. This is just, mm-hmm. he's got friends and family, and they're doing superstitious stuff like a, a, a subset of people did. How do we get from the glass licking and, and seer stones and treasure digging to the Book of Mormon? What was the migration path uh, chronologically you know how did, how did joseph get there well joseph gets married he promises father-in-law isaac hale that he'll give up glass looking and for the for the, the treasure digging group and uh, we should we should probably mention that the way joseph met emma was because well you want to maybe you want to tell the story how did he end up in pennsylvania to to meet emma at all well he's over there because there's a uh, Silver mine. They're looking for silver mine, and I think he lodges at the the Hale home, and he he meets Isaac and and uh, Emma Hale, and uh, that's where the acquaintance kind of came. So from. Josiah Stoll brings Joseph from New York to Pennsylvania to find a buried treasure, right? To find a silver mine. Yeah. Did they ever a, Did they ever find a silver mine? No, I never found anything of any value. As I understand it. Uh, from what I've understood, Isaac Hale, Emma's father, actually went with them to the place where Joseph claimed the treasure actually was. So Joseph had been hired, paid to go with him to Pennsylvania to find this treasure. Joseph took them to a place, actually said, here's the treasure, I found it, mm-hmm. but it's too far underground, we're not going to be able to uh, yeah. to exhume it. Yeah, there's always an excuse why you can't get it. But Josiah Stoll obviously thought Joseph Smith could uh, had second sight or the eyes of our understanding, so we hired him. And how did, do you know how Emma's dad felt about Joseph uh, at all? She did, he didn't uh, like his profession. In fact, he, he said, if you'll quit peeping in stones uh, and uh, if you come here, we'll give you, let you stay here and uh, give you some honest employment. And uh, Joseph followed suit. He did that. So he, so he gave up. You know, peeping and for the for the treasure hunters, and then he he seemed to at that point uh, the golden plates project came along. How, so, what, tell us about that. What do you know about that? How did how did that come about? How did what come about? I mean, for, from someone who's not sure this is necessarily of divine origins, what does the history say? Uh, how Joseph came up with the idea to write a Book of Mormon, or or whatever. Well, we don't know other than that the official story tells that he was contacted by a by a, an angel three nights in in 1823. Okay. So and and, he's, and they're really not telling that story outside of the family until 1827. Okay. So we don't know exactly when, you know, <clears throat> We know Joseph says that in 1823 he got a vision from Moroni. There were several years where he says he wasn't allowed to actually uh, have access to the plates. But at some point he's he's claiming that he 
got the plates, right? Did 1827. He to- He's supposed to bring a, a person with him each year to get the record. The first year was Alvin, but he died, so he didn't get him. Next year it was uh, 24. Let's see, it was 24. It was Alvin, but he had he had died by then. 25. We think it was Samuel Lawrence, one of his fellow treasure diggers, is supposed to get the record with him. 26. We're not sure. 27. It was Emma. Okay, so Emma went with him back to New York. Well, they 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 eloped in. Uh, from Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Emma lived. And why did they elope? Why didn't they have a nice religious celebration? Uh, her father didn't approve of Joseph. She was of age. It was legal, but he just didn't approve of Joseph because of his profession, and so he took off, and and uh, they got married and uh, came to live uh, with the Smiths in Palmyra, their Manchester. Okay. And uh, Emma wasn't too happy there, and then she... She wanted to go get her belongings and her furniture because she had ran off, and that was the following spring. And they got married in January '27, and by about spring summer, she was going back to get her furniture. And that's when she has this, or when Joseph has this confrontation with Isaac Hale and says, "You, you stole my daughter. You, you, you ran off with her. You, you looked through. You claimed to see things in a stone and 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 do treasure hunting." And that's when Joseph confessed to her in front of. Peter Ingersoll, Alva Hale, and himself. I've never been able to see through a stone, never have, never could. Right. And uh, so that's when he, and Isaac Hale offers Joseph, he says, well, if you'll come live here, we'll, we'll let you, uh, you know, we'll let you, uh, we'll give you some, some work, and, and, uh, but you got to give up this treasure hunting. He says, well, I'll do it, but it'll be hard because they put a lot of pressure on me to, to go scry for them, go right. see, see for them. So did he bring the plates back? So after they had Well, he doesn't have the plates yet. Okay, all So right. that's the summer of 27, and then in September is when he says he gets the record. So he goes back to New York? Makes a trip back to New York? Well, no, he's still living there with Emma, you see. So when did he go get the plates and no. bring them back? I, I don't, this, I'm putting a lot of pressure because you're just doing this all from memory, but at some point he had to have... Brought the plates from New York. Well, he gets married in 27. Um, she goes to get her furniture, I think, in June uh-huh. of 27. He gets the record, and he has that conversation with Isaac Kale, and he says, okay, I'll give up the treasure hunting. And then he comes back to New York, and in September he gets the record, and he gets oh. persecuted, so he goes back to Harmony to do the translating. Okay, so in September of 27, he he gets the plates. Right. And then he gets persecuted, so he takes the plates back somehow. To he takes them to Harmony, Pennsylvania, or, or concealed in a was Emma helping barrel him? of beans or something. Was Emma helping him? Was he, you know, did she see the plates? Do we know? She wanted to see them. In fact, she says she murmured because she couldn't see them. She would lift them, and they were under some kind of a wrapping or pillowcase. But... Uh, she never saw him, and uh, uh, no one ever saw Joseph use the plates in the translation process. Not his scribes, not family, not relatives, not observers, no one. So there was some heavy thing. Something. That could have been plates or whatever something else. Something plate-like, yes. Okay, so that, they're brought back to harmony, and then the translation begins. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much so. And who, who are the original translators? Well, we know that Emma scribed for a little while. 
We know that Alva Hale probably at that point was a scribe. There may have been another. And Martin Harris appears in March of 28, and he becomes the scribe. They do 116 legal-sized pages, and he loses the manuscript, and uh, so he's fired. And then, and then it's another nine months before Cowdery comes on the scene in April of 29. So what does Emma's dad think about this Book of Mormon translation business? Well, you know? he, he's not very impressed with it because he knows the same stone that Joseph's translating the record with or claiming to change, translate the record with in a hat is the same one he pretends to see things in the hills and what have you. And the plates are nowhere around, and so he's very suspicious about the whole thing. But he says, I, I will not allow my neighbors to harass you, and I will protect you, and... Uh, you know, you are married to my daughter, and uh, I'll give you safe haven here. So, what what were the mechanics uh, of the of the quote translation based on the people who were in the room in that early phase? I mean, I was always taught there's a breastplate and there's two stones, and there's look at the golden plates with the with a blanket between him and whoever. Well, there's definitely was, a blanket, and before that, uh, Harmony House burned down or was destroyed uh, you could actually see the nails that were still in the walls where they hung the blanket between him and Harris now he's the only scribe we think or that early era was the only time that the blanket separated Joseph from his scribe once they get to Fayette where they finish the translation there doesn't appear to be any screening device but Harris says four or five or six places that Joseph was sometimes uh, There'd be a screen, or a, um, sometimes he, he would be upstairs, and or, or Harris would be upstairs writing, and, and Joseph was on the stairwell, or you know things like this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so whatever Joseph was doing, Martin Harris couldn't see it, right? And 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 the the fear was that if you saw the plates uh, prematurely, you could die. That's right in the. I think that's right in the Mormon scripture. Like an Ark of the Covenant kind of thing. Yeah, kind of. He was very frightened about the whole thing, and he respected it. And uh, But it was a stone in a top hat, and you'd put it in there, and you'd kind of cover the face. And the and uh, the, the thinking is that he, he could read stuff off in the stone, but I, I don't think he could see anything in the stone. I think the sudden strokes of ideas that came into his mind is... is uh, what he was dictating to so, his scribes. So if he had his face in a hat with a stone in the hat, why were the plates even necessary? Well, that's the question. And you have Nephite uh, prophets and historians uh, passing these hard-to-engrave plates down for centuries and generations, and then he doesn't use them. I think there's, a, there's an ode explanation here as to why they were not used. So why the veil? If, why were, I mean, how do we know he didn't use them if there was a veil? Well, because they they were either hid in the woods or they were wrapped up over there on the mantle or they were uh, uh, somewhere else. They were never never present. That's a piece I don't get. The veil's there so they can't see the plates, but the plates aren't being used. So I'm, I'm, there's something I'm missing there. I don't quite... Well, that's where... Does he have something else there? Does he have a Bible that he's referring to at some time? Is he, does he have notes? Does he have... Uh, so the veil wasn't necessarily to keep them from seeing the plates. Well, that's what they said, but we know the plates were never there. How do we know that? Because he's got a face in a 
in a hat, and you can't exactly, if your face is buried in a hat, be looking at the plates. How do we know he has a face buried in the hat if he's behind a veil? Because uh, and and many times people he would tra- he would translate like that, translate like that, and people would observe him, and they'd say, this is the way he did it. So we only know it. We know that there was a veil, because someone wrote about that, but we also know that people saw him with his head in a hat and a stone in it. Oh, yeah. His brother-in-law, who married uh, Emma's younger sister, Trial, Hale married uh, Michael Morris, and uh, he observed exactly how he did it. In fact, uh, the portrayal of it in in a picture is the, is the only one in my book that I think is accurate. It, it actually has his... His knees or his elbows on his knees and his face buried in the hat. And Michael Morris describes that several times. All, all of the people who saw him, that's how he's doing it. Hmm. The plates are never, ever mentioned by anyone as being involved in the process. And I should say to our listeners that <clears throat> Russell M. Nelson has published an article in the Ensign where he acknowledges that this was at least part of the methods or process by which the Book of Mormon was translated. So we're not conveying anything to you that the apostles of the LDS Church have, have acknowledged in the mm-hmm. ensign. Um, and, I, and I can give you guys a reference to where that's been acknowledged. Well, B.H. Roberts uh, said the same in the Comprehensive History of the Church many years ago, and I think Neil Maxwell said something before he died. But when I got in trouble, uh, uh, that was the first thing that they said to me in the church office building, well, we've never heard this before. We Here's the ensign, and he's using them. And they have a picture of him using the plates maybe two or three times a year in that magazine. And besides, we've never heard a general authority say that they they weren't used. And so this got me in trouble. That's right. how I ended up on probation for a year in CES when I was a teacher at Brighton. Is because of what? Well, I was it was during the Hoffman era, and it was in the newspapers, and I was teaching senior students. And every other week we had a question answer period they could put questions in and one of them is did joseph use the trans the plates in the translation process i says i don't think so the boy told his mother went right to the principal went to his superior next thing i know i was down in the church office building for uh, an hour and a half uh, discussing uh, that very question we Mm. spent about an hour on whether he used the plates in the translation process and uh, and I, I just says, well, from what I found, uh, there's there's no relative who ever said he used the plates. There's no scribe. There's no friend. There's no acquaintance. There's no observer. Zero. None. Ever. Hmm. And they didn't. And, of course, my principal and his leader and the zone administrator, all they had seen is pictures in the ensign, and uh, no general authority had ever said this. So after an hour discussing primarily that very issue, they pulled out a statement and put me on probation for one year, which was pre, pre-prepared before I even got there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I was on probation for a year, and then I got off probation, and that, that was fine. Mm. But I remember talking to a historian at BYU, and I says, I, I can't tell you how frustrated I felt. I says, there I am, and in, in my three file leaders there, and I says, I felt like on a scale of one to ten, they, they had their understanding of our Mormon past was about a three, and he says, oh, I think you're being far too generous. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no evidence uh, or, or little to none that plates were ever used in the translation process. There are no 
no. evidences okay. of any firsthand observer. Okay. I think there's like a 1920 statement that it's a third or fourth person reference that he did, but there's... There's no original sources. There's at least 20 statements. And several people who have That say that they were never used. And there are several, uh, there are several people who have witnessed the, the stone in the hat uh, 20. Method. 20 people, yeah. Okay. So um, so the manuscript, 116 pages get lost. Martin's fired. Why the big delay, I, I wonder, between why didn't he just keep going, find another scribe and keep going? I wonder how Oliver Cowdery fits into all this and, and why the delay. Well, Joseph said that when he lost the plates, he lost the Urim and Thummim. And then it was returned to him on the equinox of September 28. So Martin's fired in June, as I remember. He gets it back, he says. In the, but the angel doesn't give him back the uh, Urim and Thummim. It, it's never called the Urim and Thummim until 1832. It's just always stone before that time. But anyway, so it's what was taken away? Biblical. Did he lose his peepstone? Well, that's that's the the discussion is. Uh, no, he always had the peepstone. The question is, he, he apparently lost the device the angel provided with him. And that was never given back to him. The plates were given back to him on the equinox. Hmm. See, the, the angel took the plates after Martin did his thing. So Joseph doesn't even have plates until September, uh, reportedly. And then the angel gives him back the plates, but not the device to translate them with. So from there on, he uses the stone peep stone or seer stone and that's the translation they translated from that stone the entire book of mormon we have today but oliver Cowder doesn't come on the scene until march of 29 you see so joseph is i don't know what he's he has about a nine month period in between there to think about the book maybe to streamline it maybe to um work out some plots, and in some ways the loss of the 116 pages, while devastating on one, on the one hand, gave him a chance to start over again. Yeah, and he did. It was a totally different book, right? It was it was sort of a polit political history, as I understand it. A secular a history. A secular history, the first that's one. That's what we're told, yeah. So I, I don't know how close that was. It's a I'm surprised more Mormons aren't weren't more curious and asked Martin Harris how were the two different from right. the current edition and the one you scribed for. Yeah, so it seemed to me someone should have asked him that question, but they <laughs> apparently did not. Okay, so so Oliver arrives on the scene, helps him um, <clears throat> helps him publish the book. Now, let's just go ahead real quickly. Um, it, apparently, uh, a preacher in Oliver Cowdery's town around this time, wrote a very interesting book uh, called A View of the Hebrews. Uh, as I understand it, it was Oliver Cowdery's preacher who wrote this book, View of the Hebrews, yeah, that I mean, Oliver Cowdery would have learned about before he ever joined Joseph Smith. Is well, that he right? certainly could have. Uh, Ethan Smith was the lived up in Pult, Pultney, Pultney, Vermont, and that's where Cowdery's siblings and mother was and so forth parents mother and um, and he was the congregational minister he was the minister there of the cowdries and uh, and so oliver knew him as i understand it he participated in that and then um and eden smith wrote this book he gathered up uh, 
40 previous authors of material about uh, what he thought ancient America would be like and wrote this novel. And the first edition sold out rather rapidly in 23, and then his second edition sold out pretty fast as well. And this went all through New York. This was a discussed book over when you met somebody at the post office. It's kind of like you and I discussing what's going on on the news today. Like uh, the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, or, or the Warren Jeffs thing, which seems to be kind of hot right now. Everybody's looking for him and talking about polygamy on television and discussing it uh, here and there among ourselves. Yeah. So tell us the basic... I mean, it's obviously the Book of Mormon was not copied from View of the Hebrews by any stretch, even by the most anti-Mormon or, you know, his historically minded uh, scholar who'd be secular. But tell us what, you know, why the frame seems uh, somewhat similar, the framing of the book and, you know, what the high-level similarities are that you well, talk B. about. Well, B.H. Roberts thought that uh, the Smiths would have known the contents. He didn't know if they'd read it or not, but it was just common knowledge, and uh, he thought that Joseph could have used, uh, that probably, I think's the word he uses, saw or knew about view of the Hebrews. And it it was just a kind of the material that was there. Everyone's looking around, poking around the mounds. And so Ethan Smith writes a book that catches the public attention about who these people were. The Indians you're talking about. Yeah, they were Israelites, and they come from from the Middle East or from you know the ancient world, Rome or somewhere. And uh, came over here, and it, it it just had a lot of very. Did they come over by boat? Yeah, I yes. They came over by boat. Okay. There's a lot of similarities. What else? And, and so B. H. Roberts thought that there was uh, that Joseph Smith may have used the Ethan Smith's book as kind of a structural or an outline for his book. But there's there's a number of simulators. There's a Christ type figure in Moses. There's uh, there there's two classes of people, those that are educated and industrial and and mechanical and those who are lazy and slothful and uh, and eventually the slothful uh, the slothful heathen uh, arm of of the civilization overwhelms and destroys the the civilized portion there's a lot of things that catch your attention for sure when you look at the book and I don't think uh, I don't look upon view of the Hebrews as something that Joseph used for, for, for uh, what for uh, text as, as an early, as an early uh, manuscript for the Book of Mormon. I, I don't see that. It's, it's, Ethan Smith was just one of many who were writing about that period, and those are the kind of ideas. They're all Israelites. Um, those kind of ideas were just in the environment and emerged, and Joseph seems to tap into that. Okay. Uh, but it is interesting to note that there were at least one book and maybe several that had the the Native Americans coming from Israel that, oh, yes. that had them coming over by boat that had a good a good tribe and a bad tribe uh, that had wars and governments and politics and a Christ coming at the very end Christ like a Christ like yeah. figure coming at the very end um, you know a lot of similarities that I, I it was surprising to me so anyway so the Book of Mormon um, eventually uh, gets published. Um, and in then 1830, short- March of 1830. So by the time Cowdery left, which is in June of 29, Joseph has another nine months to refine the book, to make whatever corrections he wanted to make. We don't know how much of that went on, but it's really, uh, from start to finish, the translation part of it or, or the dictation part of the book may have only lasted 90 days, but he's 
you could make a case that he's he is a three-year project right. or if he starts thinking about the book after 1823 it's a six-year project right so let's let's go ahead and dive into the book of mormon now um if you don't mind you, you talk uh, about um you know the the premise i think the question you're asking in your book is is the, is the book of mormon a 19th century document versus uh you know um historical document that that dates back to you know pre you know pre Christ times and so you list uh some some uh in in a few chapters of your book you basically talk about coincidences or parallels or odd similarities between um as you mentioned evangelical christianity and and the Bible, etc. So talk about at just a high level, you know, where you think the sources of the text of the Book of Mormon may actually have come from, if they're not uh, from from the plates and from a divine source. All right, I I think that I think you can that eighty percent of the Book of Mormon came from sources right in Joseph Smith's backyard, so to speak. Farms likes to dwell on that 20% that we don't know where it came from and and uh, we may never know where that 20-25% came from, but I think we have a pretty good handle where 75 or 80% came. And I'd say it came from six sources can account for 75 to 80% of the book, 19th century sources. The first is the King James Bible, and we know what edition he's using it's because it carries the errors in the Book of Mormon, from that that uh, that 1769 edition or later printing of the King James Bible, I would say 22 to 25 percent of the Book of Mormon is from the from that King James Bible. So a fourth of the Book of Mormon is straight out, yeah, word for word, almost. I'd say another fourth or 25 percent comes from the evangelical camp meeting, procedures, forms, conversion patterns, uh, the things they condemn, the, the, the concept of God and man, and uh, the patterns that you'd find at a, at a, at a tent meeting, a revival tent meeting. And like I say, the, the 11 main preachers in the Book of Mormon from Enos on up through Alma 2 seem to follow that pattern rather closely using not only the phraseology, but the theology, the, like I say, the, the baptism, conversion, four-step pattern that the Methodists, especially Methodist stuff, by the way. And, uh, and this is all chronicled in your book. In, in, yes, that's in, in chapter of four of an insider's view. And I'd say that's another 25% of the book. So there's 50%. Okay. Now, the, the, the last 25 to 35%, the last 25 to 30% comes from the following three or four sources. I think there's Smith family biography, dreams, uh, certain things that seem to relate. Joseph Smith's dreams and the Lehi dreams seems very, very close to me in, in similarity. And it's not just that one dream. There's several dreams of Joseph Sr. that seem to end up in the Book of Mormon. Um, American Antiquities, which we just mentioned, the view of the Hebrews and things that were being found and parallels that way. I think that's another part of this last 25 to 35, 30%. I also think, and I was going to do one more chapter, but 
I think there's a there's a I think someone needs to do more than Dan Vogel has done in the influence of the the War of eighteen twelve, the battle strategies of the War of eighteen twelve, and uh, especially when the British and the Indians uh, team up to fight the the United States soldiers. You'll find certain strategies of that war that seem to end up in from Alma 45 on up through Helaman on up through early 3rd Nephi. And there's two major themes that are in there that I wanted to put in a, another chapter on the Book of Mormon, but I didn't. And that was the war material and the war strategies out of the American Indian Wars and uh, the War of 1812 and there may have been other places for sources, and then the anti-Masonic feeling, which is especially strong from 1826 to 1830. Um, Captain William Morgan was killed in 26, and then it, it just was in the papers continually when Andrew Jackson ran for president in 1828. He was a Mason. Most people don't know that. And if you read the newspapers in the campaign of 1828, it's just full of what's going to happen should a Mason get in the White House and how he will corrupt the lower judges and how he will he'll put his friends in office and he will corrupt the executive and the, and the judicial branches of government. And that's exactly what you find in the Book of Mormon and the Helaman, early 3rd Nephi, and, uh, and even parts of the latter part of so, Alma, as I remember. So you're saying there's a parallel between all that... Uh, all that secret combination stuff that you read about in the Book of the Mormon. The anti-Masonic feeling seems to be uh, the arguments, the, the issues that are raised of what's going to happen should Andrew Jackson, the Mason, get in the White House and what, uh, and what will happen to the American government in the Book of Mormon seem to be similar enough to me. But there needs to be more research on that. So I would say we got roughly 20-25% from the King James Bible including the heirs, and another 25% from the, from the evangelical Protestantism of Joseph's day, which he said he often attended. And he, so this is right in his backyard, and he would know about this stuff. He would know about the King James Bible. And then these other issues, they're also in his backyard. The, the Smith family, biographical materials, the American antiquities like View of the Hebrews, the anti-Masonic stuff, the war chapters, this is all something that... You don't have to look in an ancient place to find out. So I think that we can make a pretty good case that 75, 80% of the book comes is a 19th century source. Right, right. So, um, you know, that's pretty, that's going to be pretty shocking to our listeners because basically you're saying that Joseph had a great memory, a great imagination, and authored the Book of Mormon as a, as a social sponge and a historical sponge, and it, it, it's a work of fiction, is basically kind of where you're sort of saying this all leads up to. Yes, it could be inspired fiction because it, uh, I mean, let's face it, those, uh, I think that when, when I read the Book of Mormon as a young missionary, I felt the spirit there. I think what's happening there is you're, you're at a revival but haven't been told. And if you've ever been to a revival, I've been to them in the South as a missionary, and I've, been, I've watched the Billy Graham Crusades, and people get a genuine feeling at these. I think that's what's going on, and that gives the warmth and the spirit of the Book of Mormon. Uh, I think that brings people to Christ, and that's the true value of the Book of Mormon. It does bring people to Christ. It causes them to confront their sins and to, 
to say, I'm not doing as well as I probably ought to. I think that's why Joseph wrote the Book of Mormon. It's just like the title page says. I did. This book is written to bring people to Christ. And I don't know how people can say it hasn't worked. I think it's worked rather well. Mm-hmm. And uh, does that mean that that feeling means it's historical, has historicity? Well, I deal with that in the insider's view. I don't think so, but uh, it does bring people to Christ. And maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is designed to do, is to bring people to Christ So and, do you, and not answer every question under the sun. That's when we get in trouble. But this puts Joseph in a bind of, of sort of uh, claiming that he was doing something that he wasn't, of committing a fraud, basically, of, of saying he was translating an ancient record when he really wasn't, um, of uh, claiming to have had visions with angels when maybe he didn't. So how do you reconcile him having a sincere desire to bring people to Christ, but being willing to mislead and deceive people. I, well, I think I think that Joseph Smith thought it was okay to use questionable means to bring about a glorious end, in this case, bringing people to Christ. He looked around, you read his early letters, he's terribly disturbed about people in the, in the way they're acting. He, he thinks that man is soon to be doomed to destruction. Read his New York letters to his wife in 1832. Read uh, earlier stuff. In fact, he, he says, the, in, in I think it's the Book of Mormon, within the Book of Mormon, that this book was written to bring you to the Bible, uh, to, 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 you'd believe more in the Bible. It, I think he's right on his title page, and I think he's... He's, uh, but he, he thinks it's okay to uh, to uh, fudge a little to bring people to uh, to Christ, and uh, and I think that's the the pious fraud in him is when does he really go up and get a set of plates? My guess is that he he made up a set of plate to persuade belief to increase belief, but I don't think that he used those records, and so he should have some accounting of why. Why not, since they, so much effort went into to doing them? Now, the sincere part of it, I think, and I'm willing to give Joseph this amount of credit, is that he may have thought that what ideas were coming into his mind, sudden strokes of ideas, I don't think he's reading off a seer stone. I think these ideas are coming into his mind. Why he's using the hat, I don't know if it's to persuade people who already believe he can see that way or whether he's using it for concentration purposes or some kind of prop, I don't know. But I think ideas are coming into his mind, and whatever comes into his mind, he dictates to his scribe, and he believes he's accessing an ancient American civilization, but I don't think he is. Mm -hmm. That's sincerity, even if it's... um, not true. Right. I think the real test of it is the the content of the book. And then we've already gone over six six sources in his own backyard pretty well take care of it for uh, for me at least. And I think a lot of people these days that this book came out of his own backyard. You don't need to look in some esoteric lore in some ancient world. Right. And of course, um, you know, one of the evidences or one of the the challenges uh, that farms and fair have to continually defend is all the anachronisms that are found in the Book of Mormon, the horses and elephants and steel and barley. And, and, and yes, fair and farms have uh, apologetic answers for that. 
where they say steel may not be steel, and someone once found a horse somewhere in a tar pit, and you know, but- wrong time period. But the answers farms are giving these days are so so weak that they're actually causing people who go there to say, "This is our best shot at this," and are starting to look deeper, and then they're 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 actually. The source of their doubts are beginning with the answers farms provides. Right, that's a tough pickle that they're in trying to help. But well, and it's like a person, a peddler carrying a bag, and the and the bag keeps getting heavier as time goes. The march of the evidence has not been very kind to the church during the last thirty five, forty years. Now we got DNA, and you know they're having to spin that and deal with that, and the, we've got all of these other issues. We got the Book of Abraham. We now have three. New or two new accounts of the first vision. We got this papyri that we found. The light. We've got all these things that we didn't used to have to defend, and the farms is trying to defend it all. And the bag is getting so dang heavy. There's a lot of people that, that that's getting in the in the way of the message of the church, and I think that has some direct relationship to conversion rates are going down. Have been since about 1990. Right. So we didn't we didn't talk about the the. The, the eight witnesses and the three witnesses real quick. There's something very important in your book where you you claim that maybe there was actually never, uh, they were never actually witnesses, physical witnesses to the plates. Talk about that for a bit. I was surprised to read that. Well, the last half of my but first half is essentially about the Book of Mormon. The last half of the book is on the four foundational event visions, namely the uh, angel gold plate story, the uh, witnesses to the Book of Mormon, the priesthood restoration, and the in the first vision. And uh, what caught my attention there was that all four of these have the same pattern. That is, they evolve, they become more impressive, they become more literal, physical, and yes, they become more miraculous. The stories of the... All four of those founding... Restate them again. The, The angel gold plate story. Okay. The witnesses of the Book of Mormon, especially the eight witnesses, the priesthood restoration, and the first vision. Okay. And the priesthood and the first vision, dramatic, miraculous, impressive changes come when Joseph Smith is in trouble with his own leadership. In 1838. Yes. In Kirtland. So so before you do that, tell us what... What evidence we have that the that the, what are the witnesses later in their lives as they're recounting what happened? What are they actually telling people they did experience the three and eight witnesses uh, to the Book of Mormon? And then we'll get to the first vision changes and, and the others in a sec. It's not that they're changing their story; it's that you find out the rest of their story. Okay. Modern LDS, we. We talk about their witness or testimonies found in the Book of Mormon, and it's very impressive. And we say, well, they never denied their testimonies. And we say things like uh, uh, like that, and then we say, but, but when you start looking into their lives, these people joined a lot of groups. Martin Harris joined four or five groups before Mormonism and six or seven groups after Mormonism. He would say things when after he was a Mormon when he joined Shakerism that that he saw the roll of the scroll and it was more impressive than the seeing the plates. 
He was also one of the witnesses of Gladden Bishop in 1835 in Ohio. Gladden Bishop claimed to have uh, not only had the the artifacts that Joseph Smith had, you know, the breastplate, the, the Urim and Thummim, the Leohona, and all of that, but the Gladden Bishop says the angel had given him a, a large and small crown of Lehi. And guess who his witnesses is going to be? Martin Harris. Hmm. These guys never deny anything. That's they're they're, they're, they're <laughs> spiritual gypsies, right? Some of them, the witnesses are, right? And they move around and they never deny anything. Didn't someone join Strang at some point as well? Uh, all of the living witnesses in 1845. That would have been, you know, whoever was alive in 45. We won't go into that. But most of the the the, the families of the of the Smith family and the Whitmers. Lucy Smith, Emma Smith, William Smith, who had been an apostle, they write letters that uh, Strang is our man and Revelation has confirmed it to us and uh, he's the successor of my brother Joseph and mm-hmm. Lucy's writing the same. And, and, of course, Strang claimed an appointment from Joseph Smith and he said that Moroni appeared to him and gave him those Lost plates of Laban. You remember that story of Laban, uh, 600 B.C. in the Book right. of Mormon. He got those records, and he gave them to Strang, and Strang translated them. And he got he had a he had four witnesses who who saw these plates, and then another seven who saw a second set of plates. So he had eleven witnesses, just like Joseph Smith. They never denied their testimony, and they had fallouts with Strang, and they never denied anything. So this. This shows you perhaps how easy it was for Joseph Smith to persuade these men to accept that Joseph had an ancient set of plates. I, I think it, the key to the understanding the witnesses to the Book of Mormon is their mindset. And, it, and the mindset is second sight. Their mindset is you can see things by the, by the, by the eyes of our understanding. And there's all kinds of... Examples of where they go inside the hill Camor and they see these artifacts. And if you, and if you look at how they describe their testimony, it's an awful like like the way they're describing what they see inside the hill Camorra. tables, plates, leahonas, swords drawn, all of this kind of thing. It's very very similar in the description, especially Martin Harris and and David Whitmer. So the early treasure digging where they would go and have these visions through their peepstone of seeing artifacts, of seeing things in the ground, that was the mentality. It's an extension and of that. It's an extension of yes. the early treasure digging, yeah. visualization, spiritual, yes. glass looking that was the, that they had sort of uh, spent seven to ten years participating in. Oh, I think so, and I, I think that's the part the LDS people don't know. They don't know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Right, and right. When, and when you hear the rest of the story, then it, the the word that looms up is credibility. Right. How credible, how good is the evidence, really? And, you know, we've been told that it's a physical thing, but now we've found documents and some, you know, uh, that uh, that Martin Harris gets up in, a, in the Kirtland Temple and said that none of the witnesses saw the the plates with their natural eyes. Yeah, I have, uh, I have here in your book, it says, Harris testified to Anthony Metcalf of Elkhorn, Idaho, that, quote, I never saw the golden plates, only in a visionary or entranced state. While praying, I was passed into a state of entrancement, and in that state I saw the angel and the plates. Another person asked Harris, did you see the plates and the engraving on them with your bodily eyes? 
Harris responds, I did not see them as I do that pencil case, yet I saw them with the eye of faith. Um, and then it goes on to That's say... That's the pattern, and there's numerous statements. All, all independently recall that Harris said he saw the records with his, quote, spiritual eyes only. Or that's that's the eyes of your understanding. Right. Second and, sight, spiritual eyes. And, and Leitner, Whit- Whitmer, another, um, uh, another witness, it says, recall that when asked by Gurley if the three witnesses actually did touch the real metal of the golden plates, Whitmer responded, we did not. In other words, if they handled them, it was in vision rather than in plain sight. Moyle said that Whitmer, quote, repeated to me that he did see and handle the plates, that he did see and hear the angel in a vision, but that he did not handle the plates physically. The three witnesses have always had a vi- said it was visionary. The more problematic one is the eight witnesses who are supposed to have handled the actual artifact, the plates. And seen them. And seen them. But I think it's happening in a vision. They're handling and seeing things in a vision. At least that's the way they describe when they go inside the hill. This is second sight stuff. And like I say, the descriptions of what they see on the hill is an awful lot like what they see in the in their public statement. But remember, they hesit the eight witnesses hesitated to sign the statement that was probably written by Joseph Smith as found in the Book of Mormon. And uh, I think the reason they did, although we can't be certain of this, is uh, it sounded more physic had a more physicality ring to it than what they really experienced. Right. The key to understanding that, and it's in Mormon scripture, in the Doctrine and Covenants and elsewhere, is that whatever you see that is spiritual has a certain amount of physicality to it. Right. Does that make sense? Sure. And so I think Joseph persuaded them to sign on that basis, but I'm guessing at that. Right. But any event, if you look at the whole picture of what they see, claim to see, with all the various movements, they never deny much of anything, and they, they really believe uh, in this second side stuff. That's the key for understanding the witnesses, in my view. And, um, and just finally with this point, um, the church is in a real bind because they rely on the witnesses of the three and the eight witnesses as 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 people of credibility to demonstrate the Book of Mormon is true, yet these men later on not only leave the church completely, follow other religions, uh, but also um, but, but go back on the literalness of having seen and touched the place. So it's yeah, a real I'm, bind for the church, because how do you lift them up in credibility on the one hand, but then discredit all the things they say on another? Well, I think they were pretty good men, you know. I mean, some people have gone after their character. I, I don't think the answer is not in their character. The answer is in the way they think. You know, there's people, I, I don't know how far to get into this, but we have people since 1947 who, 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 who see flying saucers, and then later we get people that are abducted, and this psychiatrists that have looked at these people says, these people are normal, they're not pathologically diseased, but they, they're under some kind of... Uh, some kind of st- stress or something that, uh, but the bottom line is that these things yeah. are being seen in inner right. space, not outer space. Okay, okay. So, in, in other words, the mind. Right. Yeah. Sure. So, just briefly, we'll do a couple more things on history very shortly, and then I want to get to the rest of your story. Um, so, the Book of Mormon is published. Uh, the church is founded, and as I understand it, for several years, no one joins the church based on. A first vision story, and no. and 
no one's even told a first vision story involving God and Jesus until, you know, when, tell us about the first account of the first vision story. Well, the, the involvement in the, of the first vision, it, the, uh, the first mention of it is in, I think, section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I hope that's right. It's in my book anyway. And it says he had a forgiveness of sin. Right. And then if you read the 32 account, it's forgiveness of sin. And then if you read the 35 account, it's a forgiveness of sin. So, so Joseph, tell us about the 32 account. That's probably the most uh, shocking for many people. I could read well, from it. Well, it was found in 1965, uh, as well as the 32 and 35 accounts were found about the same time. And uh, this surprised the church because all we thought we had was the 38 account, which is in the Pearly Great Price, and the Wentworth letter, which is 1842. So to have these two earlier ones and the— so this is new to the church. I didn't realize that. So they didn't find the original First Vision account. And who, was it Joseph's own account? Well, it's the, the only one he wrote in his own handwriting, yeah. So this is and Joseph's. writing it in his journal. So in 1832, Joseph goes to his journal, writes mm-hmm. his own First Vision story yep. with his own hand. Yeah, there's no revival. There's no There's no asking which church is right. He seems to already know that. He's, he's, he's like his mother before him. They believe that there was no, no uh what, no, uh, that everybody was in apostasy, and he already had reached that conclusion. Right. So he, he, he basically, he, he, first of all, he doesn't say it was God the Father and Jesus that appeared to him. No, right? just one being occurs, and, and that's another key to it. Whatever Joseph Smith is working on at the time in his life, whatever era it is, it doesn't matter, it reflects what Joseph believes about God. Right. Let me just let me just read from Joseph's own account of his first vision, 1832 account. Therefore I cried unto the Lord for mercy, and there was none else to whom I could go and obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of my age, so it's a different age, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord, so the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy walk, go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory, etc., etc. And and I don't believe there's anything about starting a new church, anything about other, you know. No, he doesn't even ask because he's already reached that conclusion within his own uh, own statement there. Okay. He already knows there aren't any. Okay. So it's a different that age. That was his mother's view, too. Right. So it's a different age than we, we understood. We don't hear about two beings. Well, the age is kind of trivial. The more important things are things like it's, you have to get the, the three accounts out and, and read them. And a lot of people like to play it down. You, you see an accident differently, a car accident, and you describe it differently. But if you take a look at the motives, they evolve. It goes from one god to two gods. It goes from no call to, in 38, God and Christ called me to the work. All before this, for 12 years, it's Moroni, it's an angel, it's the Book of Mormon, and nothing else. That's the missionaries. That's what everybody understands, including his own family. Now, all of a sudden, when he gets in trouble with his witnesses of the Book of Mormon in 38, so in 1838, he shifts it to the first vision pretty, is the call. Pretty much a third of the high leaders of the church leave the church after Kirtland sort of crumbled. Yes. We have the Martin Harris leaving. 
All the witnesses All, all the Calgary leaves. The Whitmer brothers leave. Why are they all leaving? Do, it mean, starts out as an economic problem. Because of the Bur- Kank, Bur- Kirtland Bank and people losing yes, their life savings, etc. Frederick J. Williams, a member of the first presidency, leaves and... And, uh, you know, several apostles and then the, the witnesses to the Book of Mormon and the Whitners and the Cowdery's. And, uh, but I think what really pulls the trigger is this meeting in the Kirtland Temple where Harris gets up and says, nobody saw the golden plates with their natural eyes. Martin Harris says that. About all of the witnesses. In 1838. Yep, right in the Kirtland Temple. And that blows three apostles right out of the church. Right. Boynton and and Lyman. Luke Johnson. And Luke Johnson. Blows them right out. Right. Uh, And there's another witness who heard that. Not only there's two or three. We have more evidence of what happened there than we used to. And there's a quote here in your book. It's on page 246. We have learned of late. That parish and most of the combination have openly renounced the Book of Mormon and yeah. become deists. Yeah. See, they're they're dropping like flies because uh, not only uh, so so in in the April conference is April conference uh, the minutes in the Far West record says that uh, five apostles are out of favor with the church. The three I mentioned have left because of the Book of Mormon not being what it claims to be. But uh, William Smith is out of favor, and so is McClellan. McClellan lives a month later in May of 38. All the witnesses left in April of 38. And then William Smith is out of sorts. And then later by September, you have Marsh, who's president of the Quorum of the Twelve, leave, as well as Orison Hyde in the Twelve. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a problem of distance. Mass affection. And at that point in time, is when Joseph decides to rewrite his history. And he starts out, as everyone knows in the church, owing to the many reports. Right. I'm going to set the record straight. Due those who are attacking the rise and progress of the church. That's right in this first vision. Right. And who he's talking about, it's not only those affidavits that were you know, written much earlier, but it's talking about guys like Boynton and the Johnsons and the Whitmers, who are saying some pretty bad things about Joseph? All the Smith. first, the first witness, the all of three it. witnesses, yes. witnesses, and it's in a time of trouble with his own leadership, and that's when the story moves from being called by Moroni to being called by God in Christ in the thirty-eight account of the first. The, the name of the church has changed. Joseph says, "I'm going to write the 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 the, the new history." He changes the name of the church, and then the. Next day, he starts writing about... Originally, it's the Church of Christ, right? Originally, our church was called the Church of Christ. It's called the Church of Christ. And then when he gets in trouble in thirty May of 34, he has a lot of financial debt back in New York. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants about the United Firm and what have you. Then he changes the church to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And then in 38, with this crisis we're talking about, it goes to the, from the to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And most members would think that that was the original name of the church, I think. Right. Yeah. Okay, so um, there's, a, there's a lot more we could talk about. Well, but, let me just say oh, one other yes, thing. I, I think the pattern here is what's important. Just as the first vision, he goes from a forgiveness experience to a, he's getting a call, f- not from Moroni, but from God. There's, instead of one God, there's two gods. Even his account 
just take a look at the for for for, the, for yourselves. Look at the uh, the development of even something like uh, the devil motif. In thirty two, there's no mention of the of the devil. In thirty five, he hears footsteps and is a little alarmed. By thirty eight, it's a knockdown, drag out, drag out life and death battle with the, with the devil. Right. And just follow how many of those themes go through and how they become more impressive and more miraculous and physical. Right. And uh, you can do that with the first vision. We've already talked about the witnesses. The priest does the same thing. It starts out that he's getting a command of God through the Spirit in 29 and 30 in the, do- in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then it, in 32, it moves to vision. It's more of a visionary thing where angels are in attendance. And then in 35, these, they become resurrected beings. They're named John, Peter, James, and John. And it gets a whole lot more impressive. It's the same pattern. That's the, what's key here. That's what caught my attention. And it's the same with the eight witnesses. It, it looks to me like it was a, a, a metaphysical experience and then became physical, literal. Is interpreted as physical. Members interpreted as physical, literal. The same is true of the angel gold plate story. Starts out as a treasure guardian. Uh, he can appear as a nice old man, a scary old man, a majestic kingly form, a resurrected being. Now today he's only a resurrected being. It starts out as kind of dreamlike stuff and yep. it ends up in interviews. And it just goes to be more, and he, and he quotes biblical passages in the later accounts. There's nothing biblical. Now some of that can be accounted for, but when you see that pattern over and over and over again, like a, a federal judge who's a good friend of mine said, he says, uh, to reading my book, he says, "My gosh," he says, if a, "if a witness like that came before me and told those those three story, those four visions, and and each time told a more impressive one, we call that the testimony is impeached, and it's a credibility problem, and it's set aside, and mm-hmm. that's the problem I think right. the modern church has to deal with." So, um, I, I we have about uh, an hour or less left and I really want to focus on your story after publishing the book so I'm just going to do a violence here and very briefly in one minute or you know two tell us because a lot of people have said the golden pot thing they really didn't like or didn't enjoy or didn't appreciate in your book they didn't see it as being very valuable I really don't want to dig into it deeply tell us just really quickly at a high level what the golden pot thing is and if you have any response well I've given you I knew there'd be response to this because it's never been really published in any kind of detail before. And if you'd like, there's a copy. I it, I put it in a different format. I think what's key here is that uh, I'm I'm not saying in the book, and I can make quotes within the chapter five, the Golden Pot chapter. I'm not saying that Joseph Smith got this book and decided this is the story I'm going to tell. That's not what happened. It's a lot like Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews. It was there. It was in the environment. The storyline was there. The motives, the magic stuff. Joseph is being influenced by his own experience, whatever it was. He's, he's being experienced by the treasure lore of the day. He's being uh, I think there's definitely ideas in the golden pot that may have influenced him. Okay. At least I, I feel there is. And you get different reactions. Now, Mark Shear, the world historian of the RLDS, now Community of Christ, he thinks, he thinks that's the, this, 
a wonderful chapter, and he doesn't think I went far enough. He sees parallels between the Golden Pot and, and Smith's story, even in the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, two or three of my historian friends says there's definitely something there. And you said Others was, say they don't see anything there. But you said it was a BYU history professor who sort of yes, tipped you off he, to this. Yes, he would definitely say, uh, one of them said that to him, and he's one of our very best historians, says that to him the parallels were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And another says, well, there's definitely something there. He might say, well, there's seven or eight things in there that really caught his attention where I've listed 25. But, and then there's people who say, I don't see it. I don't, you know. But I'm not saying. That it's a primary source of, of textual. I don't. There's no evidence that Joseph Smith read the Golden Pot. I think the conduit is most likely Lumen Walters, but that's, we don't know that. But this stuff is just in the environment. It's there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, I read the book a couple years ago when I was a seminary teacher in Seattle, and there was one problem I have with the book. Um, it it seemed like what you were saying was, here's all this circumstantial evidence, therefore any rational, reasonable mind is going to come to the conclusion that the Book of Mormon was a fraud. And I, I found myself saying... It's going to be very easy for the apologists to say, of course the Bible is going to appear in the Book of Mormon because God is the author of the Bible. So if God is the ultimate author of the Bible and God's the author of the Book of Mormon, then the God's word is going to be in both. And of course, Joseph Smith had to use his understanding and his experiences to inform his translation and his inspiration. And so there's going to be residue of anachronistic things and of stories or phrases or ideas because he's taking this these weird characters that he doesn't know anything about and he's struggling to try and do this translation and he's going to have to use his language and his understanding to make that uh, record come about it's not a literal word for word thing and so of course the things that inspire and influence joseph smith are going to show up in the book because he's that's how translations happen and so i felt like you were trying to say it's obvious any any rational person is going to conclude the Book of Mormon is a fraud by these facts. When when I read the book, I thought, no, you're painting a mosaic that's very compelling, one that Von Brody and others also painted. But uh, I don't think you've proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Book of Mormon is false. No, and I haven't answered the question for the reader. The reader has to make that decision. I'm just showing what I think happened and where his sources are from and... Um, and then the reader will have to take it from there. So you don't claim that your book disproves the Book of Mormon as as a, it debunks the Book of Mormon's origins. Well, I would, uh, for me, I would find it hard to still believe it's a historic, a real historical record of an ancient people. It just uh, is a colonial historian. I uh, studied a great deal of that. I, I just see too much of the of that period of time in the Book of Mormon. Right. Okay. I watched it sinking down. The treasure I'd own.